Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to talk about all kinds of stuff. We've got some new cameras, lots of lenses, and some interesting monitor tech that's out there for free for you if you're trying to calibrate your monitor. But first, Devin, what have you been up to, man? Oh, besides uh, Memorial Day weekend and uh, pulling extra hours so that the studio can take a day off, uh, just editing uh, one of my road trips, which I did completely on GoPros. It's all GoPro footage, uh, but I shot it all at 2.7, the 2.7, no, not 2.7, the 1440p mode, oh, okay. which is a 4 by 3 but I've noticed I get so much more range uh, going uh, up and down with it and kind of recalibrating it a little bit uh, while not having the same, uh, being limited to the same frame rates and everything else of the 2.7K. So I've been a big fan of the super wide field of view because all I have is a 3 and a 3+. Plus. And I know the oh, 3+, okay. plus does have that super mode, but I never liked it. I see tons of people use it. But editing that and um, kind of conforming it, defishing it, and having fun doing all that kind of stuff. On the road, actually, that GoPro software is not bad for just assembly. You know, just getting a rough idea of what you want to do before it's taken into Premiere. So. But that's been about it. GoPro footage and, uh, you know pulling extra hours at the studio what's up with you now how do you feel on the gopro topic actually how do you feel about their <laughs> whole like translating the stuff over to cineform and then using the cineform plugin in premiere does do you think that really gets you much more out of your gopro footage i it's one of those where i don't see the results i'm sure that if i had scientific instruments and stuff like that i could tell you what the differences are uh, it's one of those where I, most of the time, I don't even shoot ProTune. I know that ProTune's a higher bit rate and everything else, but, uh, I don't do a whole lot of crazy color calibration. It's one of those, if I had to match other cameras besides the GoPro, I'd probably use ProTune. But when I'm just like for fun or personal projects, just a full GoPro project, I don't even bother with the ProTune. I just kind of let it do its own thing. And most of the footage just comes out good enough and I can still push and pull and post a little bit here and there, but uh, I'm more about uh, the speed of getting it out. And um, I think altogether as a culture, we're kind of moving towards a video format of good enough rather than exactly perfection, uh, you know, and super calibrated cameras and super expensive, uh, you know, signals and whatnot. Now, one other GoPro caveat here, and you're, you said you're shooting on the 3 Plus, right? Yes. yes. So um, did you upgrade and actually lose bitrate? Uh, when you go to that new version of the GoPro update that was supposed to conform for the SanDisk cards that were too slow? Or did you stay with the older version of the uh, firmware on the GoPro so you could get like the 35 or 40 megs uh, Kodak as opposed to the 30 meg Kodak? Uh, I stayed with the older version because I heard there was a drop, and so far it had been working great with all the SD cards I had. I know there's a big problem with uh, the SanDisk micro SDs, their older ones not being quite fast enough. I ended up buying Samsung SDs, uh, micro SDs, which tend to work out just fine for me, and I never had any drops or disconnect issues with the higher bit rates. So, and I didn't really see anything in the features besides the fact that it would be more compatible, and I could see it being useful in the future. It's just kind of disappointing because obviously the GoPro software is like conforming to whatever SD cards you have, right? So you can put in kind of crappy ones and you will get a lower bit rate. Like people have found like depending on what SD card you do, it dynamically adjusts to what's available or it tries to guess it. And sometimes it doesn't always guess right. And that's where the SanDisks, I guess, uh, had huge dropouts. But uh, it's one of those where I'll probably eventually update it for one reason or another because I want to update the Wi-Fi or something like that to kind of twist your arm and force you into the updating firmware thing pretty often. 
uh, to rename cameras or whatever you want to do. But uh, for me, I still don't see that big of a difference in the bit rate because to me, it's still a super crunched down H.264. And he, whether it's 25 megabit or 35 megabit, kind of those are still in the same range to me. You want to talk 50 megabit. Now we're talking about like I want log and all these extra features. But for like 25 versus 35 or something like that, I don't see a lot of difference. And in post, I don't see a lot of extra that I can work with. So now not to turn this into a GoPro podcast, <laughs> but um, one more thing I kind of want to like hit on with the GoPros mm -hmm. is, um, you know, they've kind of cornered the market in that whole action camera section for quite a Absolutely. while. But now we have announcements that um, Apple may be moving into that category with a new camera type device that will take over for the GoPro in general. And GoPro stocks have seen a hit just on the rumors that Apple might invade this market. What do you think about that? Do you think Apple's going to just come in and revolutionize the action camera? Or do you think uh, GoPro will continue to dominate the market? Uh, it's interesting, right? Because when it comes to action cameras, I really only see two schools of thought. And one of them is, what's the best? Which isn't something that we talk about much with cameras. It's what's the best tool for the job. But when it comes to action cameras, I notice most of the demo seems to be, what's the best camera? Or like, kind of what's the cheapest? I don't see a lot of people like there's a reason why uh, Contour and the other action cams really fell by the wayside. And that's because side by side, the GoPro footage looked better. And so then all everyone said, oh, the GoPro is the best. So people spent extra and went with GoPro. So that worked. So depending on what Apple comes out with, I mean, they put those uh, Samsung sensors or whatever in their iPhones or uh, Sony sensors. I forget what they are. Um, but uh, and they look great, but it's um, it'll depend on what their camera looks like. Can they steal market share? I don't even think they're interested in that. I think the rumors are probably more about um, doing like live broadcasting or live broadcasting. I mean, Google kind of took a stab at it with the Google Glass. I mean, part of it was just like the heads up display. But part of it, too, was kind of like real time sharing of your life experiences and letting other people experience things with you remotely. And I see that as like a, it's kind of an interesting, kind of scary, kind of unknown kind of thing moving into the future here. But with Meerkat and Periscope, um, I see Apple maybe being interested in jumping on that train where people just boop, turn on their camera. I mean, if you imagine, uh, not that it's my idea or original idea, but like iPod headphones having cameras in them or a camera in them because they're powered by the phone and there'd be a bunch of reasons why that would be a pretty efficient way to do it. But as you walk down the street, somebody else could experience what you're experiencing. You could hit record and like see, you know, either police brutality or you could show your friend doing a really cool skateboarding trick. So uh, I kind of feel like that's the next social revolution here is like live broadcasting. Instead you think of, in the headphones hey, though, like actually installed <laughs> because if you did that, you would almost have to yeah. have a proprietary connector on your iPhone in order to accommodate the power feeds for that because if your your regular four <laughs> you know four barrel connection for your phone doesn't have any juice to it. So no, yeah, you'd have like you'd have to have some new connector, and that would be like some new if, lightning connector style thing or thunderbolt connector that well, Apple if, would have to you, sell you. Yeah. If, if you want the technicality of it, I could see them just using that thunderbolt port. Uh, there's no reason why they can't pass audio data through it and microphone data and even probably um, video data as well. I mean, pro not probably 4K or anything fancy like that, but they probably could pass video data through there as a device because Thunderbolt is built as a like peer-to-peer -peer device as much as it is kind of like a server-client uh, connection. So I don't know. I'm throwing that out there. That's a random thought. Nobody's ever like rumored about it or anything like that. I'm just saying like, who knows what they're you know, going to come out with. I'm sure they've got something in the works, but I'm not even sure that their direction is targeting that. 
uh, kind of in the same way that like the Apple Watch isn't necessarily targeting what the Android Watch was. Uh, Apple is kind of moving there in the health area with the watch, where the Apple or the Android watches don't really do a lot of health stuff. But the Apple Watch does all the health things. You know, that's exactly what you could tell it's built for. So I wouldn't be surprised if that everyone thinks they're making an action cam and then they come out with some kind of like life blogging cam or something like that. Because uh, I'm sure that's kind of what Google was going for with their Google Glass thing before everyone got really paranoid about it. And now that that's all subsided, it'd be the perfect time for Apple to come up and be like, hey, look, we can do it, too. And people will be like, oh, Apple did it. Oh, that's cool. Let's do it. So who knows? You know, it's, this is all speculation. There's nothing behind it. But um, uh, I I don't. I GoPro is is like built the way it is. And it has such a corner on the market. And of course, the stocks are going to hit. But I don't think anything that Apple comes in that market is going to be revolutionary because GoPro already has remote control, already has 4K. Um, and honestly, the quality for the size of camera and everything else is really great. The only thing that it doesn't work well is the battery life. So it, for me, it's kind of like, eh. Well, I don't know, though. GoPro doesn't really have a corner on the market as far as design because GoPro doesn't even design their own platform. Another company, I can't remember the name of it, but I've posted about it before. This is how you find out in advance what's coming in the next GoPro. You go to this company's website and their platform is a camera, a board, a controller, and a CPU that handles all the processing on the back end. And GoPro just basically builds a housing for that, adds the lens, and adds some of the accessories. So in that regard... They don't do any of the software? Uh, GoPro does some of the software, but basically they give you an API with hooks for uh, Mm -hmm. their CPU. So like you just get in there, design a GUI for it, and then like use the API hooks to pull data out of the, you know, camera stream or audio stream or whatever. And so, I mean, it's like sort of building on top of it, but the company actually does all the design in the background for them. And the new cheap cheap versions of the GoPro, like that $67 one that we saw uh, from Mm -hmm. that Chinese company, they're using that same platform and then just putting their own lens and their own body around it. And it's pretty much the same guts as a GoPro minus the, you know, the lens and stuff. So there are some advances in like lens technology, but all it would take is someone like uh, Apple to come in and say, Hey, you know, we already have an entire camera department working on the iPhone camera. They've done a great job. We'll implement all of our software design techniques into that. Take the sensor that we're using in our smartphones already that we have a corner on. We own the manufacturing for, we own a lot of, the like back-end process that's used to make all that stuff and incorporate that into an action camera that works seamlessly with your your <laughs> phone so now yeah, instead yeah. of uh, going in yeah, yeah exactly so now you're locked into like the ecosystem by having this apple camera that goes with it and if it's good enough and then it has all the same features that you get out of the apple or the iphone think about the iphone's camera versus a gopro uh they're pretty mm-hmm. much neck and neck, and that's in a smartphone versus the size of a, a GoPro. I don't know if they're not capable of shooting 4K right now, I don't think, on the iPhone 6. But, I mean, that's only a few changes in firmware away from yeah. being possible. You know, it's just the amount of data you can collect. So, <laughs> you know, the, taking that little piece of the iPhone 6 out, now you can sell another device for 500 bucks that has maybe $200 worth of stuff inside of it or $100 worth of stuff inside it. And if you have good software where it's just one button and you can see the camera and start going 
that's a really attractive option. And especially when people are like really excited about like the watch already. Now you have this other wearable thing that you can film your life with, strap it to your forehead and like see your own perspective of everything. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. That may be pipe dream stuff, but that's the kind of thing that GoPro has to look at right now. They're a big company, but compare them to someone like Apple or Samsung or some of these other companies. And they're actually not that big in reality. Uh, Even Sony is eaten in pretty well into the action cam market and sony just has like a peeled off division of their camera section working on the uh, what is it the con- uh contour i think is the name of the sony branded action camera i don't i don't remember what the the label no, is the weird tube shaped one. one but yeah. uh yeah even that's gotten good reviews and uh, a lot of people compare the footage between that and the gopro and they feel that they're neck and neck right now and all it would take is like an advance in i don't know low light capabilities or you know uh faster frame rate something like that you know implement 96 frames per second at 4k or uh, 120 frames per second at 4k and bam now you've like outwitted gopro with the better kodak and uh, <laughs> you know a better feed okay <laughs> that's enough point. gopro Very talk point. i'm gonna move on to the news before we go down too yes. much more of a rat hole time for the news First up on the news, and I actually brought this over from last week's notes, um, Mitch and I talked about this a little bit, and I thought I would give you a chance to kind of comment on it. The Panasonic G7. This is an $800 version of the GH4, basically, with a few features taken off. Uh, frame rates have been disabled for certain things. Uh, you get UHD, but you don't get the full 4K uh, frame rates. You also are missing, looks like, a headphone jack and a few other minor things, but... It's $800 versus the price of what? About 12 to 1300 for a brand new GH4. What do you think about the G7? Um, I don't think of it as an $800 G4. Maybe I stand alone in this because that's what everyone's heralding it as um, you know, the a, a cheaper uh, alternative way to get GH4 quality, but uh, I saw um, a few guys upload some footage from it already. Some guys have been testing it out, I believe in England, and uh while it looks 4K and you're watching and it all looks 4K and it all looks good, um, what I would do with GH4 footage is I would kind of look for that ability like you kind of have with like kind of red cameras and other things like that where I would just pull a frame out. And even though it's H.264 and it's temporal codec and everything else and vector based and all that stuff, you can pull a frame out of the GH4 footage and you've got the quality of a 4K photo like right on. It's, it's, it's pretty close. There's still a little bit of compression. It's not like it's raw or anything like that, but it's pretty damn close. Um, I don't know what kind of bit rates they're running here. I mean, I know that they've got a newer engine and stuff like that that's in it. But I look at this and when I looked at the test footage, I was pulling out frames and they looked muddy. It looked better than 1080, but it didn't look like the same 4K as the GH4. Uh, so just from me pulling down and downloading uh, copies of the MP4s people have written on it, it, it's not that super high quality now. As a second camera, as something to mix, as you know, uh, something like that, I think it's definitely a cheaper way to add a GH4 to your setup or what have you. But I wouldn't exactly just call it a cheaper GH4 because I didn't see the same quality in the images. And maybe I'm alone in that because uh, I haven't had the two cameras side by side to do a whole lot of testing. I just wasn't impressed with a lot of the footage. I mean, it's the same thing that happened that I saw happen with the last G7 where I went, yeah, this is really great footage. It's just not quite as good and gives me as much flexibility in post as uh, the previous camera. So I wouldn't buy it as my primary, uh, but for the price, 
con- uh, like considering the price. So that's really the selling point here. That considering the price, I think it looks fantastic. Uh, it just wouldn't be my go-to camera. I'd still spend the extra. It's not much. Extra what four hundred dollars for a GH4. I'm looking right now to see on eBay what the use price of a GH4 is, and it looks like about eleven to twelve hundred dollars for a GH4 uh, in the used market, and about thirteen hundred yeah. to twelve hundred dollars for the new units. So, yeah, that that isn't huge price jump between the two cameras, but it, it seems like I don't this know. Came out- Months it, ago, if this came out six months ago, it'd make a lot more sense, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. The the thing though about this camera is that you know you're paying four hundred dollars more for the GH4, but what are you losing? You're losing some frame rates. Uh, they've disabled the Kodak <laughs> a little bit. They've uh, taken the headphone jack out, and that's not a whole lot. But those are all really important things for end users. I mean, how long have we been irritated with Canon for not including headphone jacks in their full line of cameras? You know, what is it, the the 5D Mark III and the 7D Mark II or the headphone gurus and everything else is like even the 6D yeah. doesn't have a headphone jack? Uh, it does feel like a step back in that regard. But $800 for a 4K camera, I mean, what's its competition and it, like I out said, there? it's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, while I'm, I'm sitting here pixel peeping saying it's not as good as a GH4, it's really not bad. It, even if you go to YouTube and you look at the YouTube compression, you can still resolve. There's a ton of detail there. It's definitely shooting 4K. Um, it's not you know upsampling 4K or something like that. I think the bitrate's just a bit low. So once you start to introduce a little bit of motion, um, it ends up uh, not looking quite as good as you would hope. But um, not that the GH4 is a perfect 4K camera. So like I said, really cool camera uh and maybe too for just people who want to do like photography and video on the side who don't care like i do about like a gh4 and trying to get you know log uh vericam log or whatever which we probably never will but uh you know if you're not worried about all that kind of stuff it's a cool it's a great photography camera for sure the you know all the photography features are there so i guess if you're less focused on the video point and you're not really a dslr video guy it becomes probably the best mirrorless camera because you're not going to get much more in photography features on the GH4 uh, than the G7. So that's something to consider as well. And for those of you not familiar with uh, the difference between 4K, true 4K and uh, UHD, uh, UHD is ultra high definition, which is four times uh, 1920 by 1080, which ends up being 3840 by 2160. Uh, true 4K is a 496 by 2160. So that's the difference. You're losing not a whole lot, a couple hundred pixels on either side, uh, not a, a big jump, but uh, there is a little bit of a difference. And that is available in the GH4, whereas only UHD is available in the G7. So, I don't know. It will shoot 60 at 1080, which was a big deal last year. Yeah, so, and I mean, I mean $800 for a 4K camera, you know, and with an interchangeable lens. Yeah. I mean, that's coming way down. So, it's still a pretty decent camera. A lot of people are really excited about the G7. I like my GH4, and I'm probably with you on the fact <laughs> that if I were to get a second uh, Micro Four Thirds camera, it would probably be another uh, GH4. So another exciting <laughs> thing, and I'm jumping right ahead because this is really cool, and I am out here in a hotel still, uh, closing my house next week. I will have a home again, thank God, um, is that color calibration can be expensive. If you want to calibrate your monitor, you're going to look at about uh, $200, I believe, for the entry-level tools, all the way up to four or $500 if you really want to get fancy. I have a Spider 4 Pro that I normally use to calibrate my monitor, but 
as you guys know, I've, I, I've got a color monkey. Ooh, which yeah. I also like these guys. Those yeah. aren't too bad either. I've got one. Like 175? Yeah, and they, uh, they work with projectors too, which is part of the reason why I grabbed it. Uh, you can kind of set them up and they'll shoot the projector screen and calibrate it there as well. But they, they all, almost all the decent ones, unless you're buying used, are over 200. So you're right. It's a pricey option and not, it's not in everyone's budget for their post production. So if you have one of those, it's great and you can calibrate your monitor. I suggest everybody calibrates your monitor, especially if you're doing any kind of color co- uh, grading or anything like that. But if you're in a pinch like I am right now, where that unit is packed up in storage and I don't have it with me, this is really cool. Uh, the website, let me look at this real quick, make sure I get this right. It's tftcentral.co.uk. They provide basically the ICC files, the profiles for monitors that they've tested and calibrated, and they've done hundreds and hundreds of monitors now assuming your monitor is manufactured the same way every time or at least within a tolerance of you know five percent or four percent using something like that as a baseline will get you really close to your monitor calibration and it's really nice you go to their website you download the icc files they have the install guide i did not know this until now because i've always used the color grading tool or the uh, grading tools is that uh, you actually have to install that icc profile in multiple locations in windows in order to get it to take on your monitor so uh, keep that in mind the install process is a little bit tricky but once you do that you look up your monitor you install the ICC files for it, and then it gives you settings to adjust the monitor, what they use to get the monitor within range. And the Samsung 4K panel that I'm using right now, I was able to dial that in pretty much perfect. I think, I I might be wrong, but it looks nicer now than it did when I actually had it color calibrated. So this is a <laughs> really nice set of tools. And, you know, Devin and I were talking about this before the show. Normally, I would expect that I would have to pay 20 or 30 bucks for something like this, and this is free. Uh, these guys provide these every time they do a new monitor review or an, an update or someone submits a profile for a monitor. They load it to the website and have it ready to go. And again, that's tftcentral.co.uk. Have, have you even heard of this? Is this new? Like, no, is, I, I'd never even heard of it until I was like searching for this. So it's like... and I love the fact, too, that it includes all the instructions on how to do it because, uh, like, you know, running on Windows, uh, it is multiple steps, like you said, in multiple locations. Uh, but I downloaded uh, the one for my cheap, super cheap 27-inch IPS display. Yeah. Uh, I downloaded that one, and you know what? It was only maybe a few points off of my original calibration, which tells me that, you know, it's right in line. Of course, these are only going to be kind of as good as, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, quality control of the monitors. So if, you know, you're looking, because they do have a few Chinese brands in here. They've got uh, BenQ, which is a pretty decent monitor brand, but Compared to something like Dell, Dell is, has a lot of quality control on the monitors that come out. So their calibration files will go a lot further. Uh, but something to keep in mind, too, like you said, it's always best if, uh, if it's available to you to be able to calibrate it yourself uh, with the, you know, the tools, whether you buy used or you, sometimes, too, I know some people just even borrow them. They're just like, I'll calibrate it once. Technically, people are like, oh, monitors like, kind of fade this way and that way when they start to grow older. But I know some people calibrate it once and that's it. Uh, the ones that don't have quite the call, uh, quality control, like Cat Leap and stuff like that, this may be more of a mixed bag for you guys because I've seen lots of people report crazy colors, and I've seen r- really ridiculous calibrations on those things, blues that are way too big and stuff like that. But for most people who have Dells, LGs, even Ace or Asus's, I think this is perfect. And the fact that you can just download it, use it, 
And, you know, if you don't like it, it's fine. It doesn't matter. But it at least gets you to a point where, uh, where you know, you can start experimenting with this kind of stuff before you even buy a color calibrator. You can even put this on, just be like, hey, does it make it look any better? Oh, it does. Look at that. So definitely a great tool. It's definitely something you should bookmark just in case uh, you end up on somebody else's computer or you have to borrow one in the studio and you don't know if they calibrate their systems and stuff like that. Well, and this helps to um, knowing that multiple people have submitted the the same thing. A lot of popular monitors are in here. Uh, my Samsung 4K monitor. This is like the 285DS0 or whatever. Uh, those are all in here available, and it gets you within ballpark. Even if the manufacturer was horribly off in their manufacturing process, you're only talking maybe five or six percent. Like you said, a couple of <laughs> of points here and there. I don't know. I think definitely check this out. Give it a try. If you aren't happy with it's it free. afterwards, yeah, it's free. It's not like, you know, it's <laughs> going to cost you anything. Definitely a really cool tool and something I didn't even know about until I ran into this particular situation. So look for that. That's tftcentral.co.uk, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Well worth looking into. What else is well worth looking into? If you are a pocket camera user, the... Uh, Noctacon 10.5mm f0.95 micro four thirds lens has finally got American pricing. Uh, looks like you can pre order it on eBay for a shipping date in June, and the price is going to be $14.45 with free shipping. That is an expensive micro four thirds lens. That is a very <laughs> spendy lens, but 10.5mm on the pocket camera, I mean, that gets you sort of a wide viewing angle yeah, I, I get to basically a 30 33 uh what have you 32 yeah what is the crop um, on the on the pocket camera is that like uh it's, it's 3.1 something like that or is it just three flat yeah i've i've heard both it's not like i've got tools to test it but the three three is easier to do the math with so that's what i end up doing because most of the time i'm just like what's the rough idea i don't know what exactly a 50 millimeter 35 on a on a full frame sensor looks like you know exactly so depending on where i'm sitting it's not like my eyes are super accurate like that so i just use 3x because i go all right it's a 30 and when i put it on ah, it feels like a 30 it could be a 35 but it's close enough that uh, i'm not you know Pull so, out the calculator. One side note, and you guys, you got me actually thinking about that. Um, this is the Canon 6D, and I also own the 5D Mark III. This is the 50 millimeter f1.2, and one thing I found out that you don't see mentioned anywhere on the 6D is that even though they say it's a full frame camera, it's not quite a full frame camera. It's a full frame equivalent, which means it's like 98% of full frame or 99.1%. So I was trying to line up a shot with the camera in the exact same place with the 6D and the 5D Mark III. And the view looked, you know, it wasn't quite right. I was like, well, what the hell is going on here? And so I started digging into the specs. And if you look at the sensor size on the 6D's page, it actually shows you that it is like 0.23 millimeters smaller on the short end and uh, um, like a millimeter and a half shorter on the large end or micrometer, whatever that works out to, for the sensor size. So it, it isn't a full frame sensor completely, but it's almost a full frame sensor. So something to think about if you don't know what it looks like. No, I mean, I bet there's a ton of people out there that have no idea that their 6D isn't quite full frame, that it's just almost full frame. And they advertise it as a full frame camera. Anyway, sorry, back to this lens here before I go <laughs> off the rails again. Yeah, and it, you know what? Uh, I've heard really great things about Voigtlander. I know um, 
Philip Bloom on his blog. He did a whole video with that 25 millimeter Voigtlander that's f0.95 uh, on his GH3 maybe at the time, maybe GH4. Yeah, it's a sexy uh, but, lens. Uh, it is. And you know what? Of course, it's a little soft at f0.95. But what that means is that at f1.4, it is tack sharp. It's just as sharp at 1.4 as it is at 2 or 2.5. Two because that's always something I consider, too. Uh, you, you could look at these and be like, wow, look at you know how fast this lens is. Uh, and then you start to come into usability, especially if you're talking 4K. Um, if, if it's a little soft, you'll think your focus was wrong or something like that. And just about every lens gets a little soft when it's fully open. Um, unless you know, you're spending money like a, a Canon L-series, they pretty much... I can't tell the difference. I know people who pixel people, but I can't tell the difference when a L-series is full open, so... Well, I know these guys you look at the corners, uh, even on an L-series lens like the 35mm f1.4, it gets a little bit soft in the mm-hmm. corners wide open. Uh, the 51.2, it's sharp in the middle and soft on the sides. And Some people even say that the f1.4 is actually sharper in the center than the mm. 51.2 uh, wide open. So it, it, there are some things. Mostly you notice that in stills, though. By the time it's gone through yeah. the compression chambers inside of a Canon right. camera and kicks out a 1080p image, I mean... It's really pretty hard to tell. The 4K is where it yeah. starts getting noticeable on the GH4. Uh, I have the 25mm f0.95 in my collection, and it is a little bit soft. Uh, it kind of looks like, um, I don't know, sort of a, a nice effect. It's not horrible. But <laughs> when you scale that 4K image down Here's to 1080p, to then you don't really notice that it's soft at all. And it's just a real subtle, like... Uh, not yeah. quite as sharp as you think it should be. Still, um, one thing I've run into with the Voigtlander lenses, and I think I've talked about this before, is that mine are a little bit sloppy in the focus ring, mm-hmm. which is pretty disappointing for lenses that are this price. And this is yeah, a yeah, I've heard a lot of that. Yeah, and I have the uh, I have the seventeen point five millimeter as well as the uh, twenty five millimeter and uh, the forty. I think it's a forty two five f zero nine five or a forty. Yeah, I think it's 42.5. But anyway, um, I have all those, and they're all just a little bit sloppy in the focus ring. And mm-hmm. I've tested other models on showroom floors and stuff like that, and it's been hit or miss as to whether they're sloppy in the focus ring. So just something to look out for. This, anyway, is a sexy lens. If you want all of the aperture, <laughs> you can get and that. And also for quadcopters. No, well, you could, you could th- do you think this is throw, light enough I to get onto heavy. No, yeah, no, no. Because this is going to be a it's monster, like a pound man. And a half. Yeah. yeah, it's a pound and a half, but... Uh, the normal gyros that run like uh, a 5D and some kind of like wide angle lens that people run, you could run a Blackmagic Pocket and this guy on that same kind of size gimbal and you could get some really brilliant low light footage uh, with, you know, a nice wide aperture. You set the focus to infinity, fly up and you could get some beautiful nighttime shots uh, if you're a quadcopter guy because... I know those guys usually struggle a bit with getting uh, the nighttime shots and stuff like that and getting fast glass that uh, works well with their little shooters. But, yeah. So, I mean, that's just that's one thing I thought of when I saw this. I went, oh, I know it's going to be heavy because it's all going to be solid you know, steel or whatever they've got. But I go, eh, with a black magic, maybe it'd be just light enough you could get away with it and uh, really get some beautiful nighttime footage because I haven't seen that yet. A lot of people don't use quadcopters at night. I don't understand why. Well, yeah, you know, with like a lot of the built-in cameras on there, GoPros, everything else, none of those are designed yeah. for night shooting. But Low light. Yeah, yeah uh, if you haven't ever held a uh, Voigtlander lens, they're f- fairly heavy. I mean, the either Nocturne versions or Noct- Nocton, is that how you say that? I I've never actually pronounced this correctly. Is it N-O-Nocton? Is that how you say it? I th- 
I've heard other people say Nocton, but I'm not sure anyone knows. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, they're all made out of metal. They're machined. They're very heavy. They're very beefy pieces of glass, and they are pretty but nice. But they're sloppy. But they are a little bit sloppy. <laughs> I was just a little bit disappointed with mine because I paid so much for it. But, uh, you know, right. still, I use them. I like them. And if I need really shallow depth of field on my GH4, that's the lens set that I reach yep. for. So, I mean, I still use them all the time. Um, I don't have it in the show notes, but one other lens that's very nice on a Micro Four Thirds body is that uh, Olympus 75mm uh, f one eight. That thing is tack sharp. It's super small, and man, you can just knock the background out. It. I compare it kind of to the uh, 135 f2 Canon L series lens because it's sort of that same field of view a little bit more, and it's <laughs> like it's great for portraits. It's great when you just need to isolate someone out of the background, and the lens is small and sharp and beautiful. I love that lens. It was it does worth look the small. Yeah, it was worth the thousand. I think twelve hundred bucks. I think I paid for it. Or it's yeah. down to nine hundred now. Oh, you pick on Amazon. Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always happens. You buy it and then it drops down in price. All right. Speaking of price and no, actually, there's no transition here. I'm just gonna flub this one. <laughs> no transition. Uh, the Samsung any or NX One is back in the news with a firmware update. Looks like they've added a bunch of autofocus features, but the key features that people are really excited about are the video recording enhancements. Looks like uh, they've improved the quality of the FHD uh, at 60 frames per second. They've added some. Uh, time code stamps to the footage itself. They've added uh, what is what else we got? Uh, auto mic controls on and off. I you know I guess that's a thing. Um, but they have histograms <laughs> as well as some 4K features that have been included. Uh, a lot of people were excited about the NX1, and it still continues to get updates. So Samsung's been paying attention to what people have been asking for and sort of upgrading as needed. I haven't even messed with one of these. Devin, have you even had a chance to get your hands on an NX1? It's kind of one of those like unicorns. I hear everybody talking about it, but I never actually see it out in the field anywhere being used. I don't see it out in the field either, and so I'm not sure if somebody knows something I don't or you know, uh, Samsung just isn't known uh, well enough for people to really uh, try their equipment. But a lot of the features I'm seeing here tells me that uh, they want to compete and they're willing to uh, put – their money where their mouth is because all of uh all the settings here and the basic specs of this camera is pretty good and it sounds like all the things i see they're adding here is not stuff that they needed to add it's not like it's something wrong with the camera i mean there's a few bug fixes but it's them actually adding features that they're capable of adding because of whatever uh, room they have with the sensor and the firmware so things like time code and stuff like that tells me that enough pros came by and said hey we you know we need time code or, um, you know, we also need, uh, you know, your autofocuses uh, need some work and stuff like that. And this looks clearly like an update that is just responding to the community, not trying to uh, pull in sales figures or anything like that. So it's exciting to see, but you're right. It's one of those I've never seen anyone use it. I've seen test footage of it. I've seen people talk about it, but I've never seen anyone actually pick one up and use it for a project. Well, and there's a surprising amount of glass available for it. If you go to B&H right now and just search the Samsung Lens, 
you'll find 28 lenses available for this mount. And they're all over the place, covering all kinds of ranges, good pancakes, good uh, prime lenses, a lot of F1.4s and F1.8s in the collection, a lot of really interesting fisheye and pancake lenses, and then all of the regular complementary zooms that you would expect from a camera like this, or for a camera like this. It's it's weird. I wonder, There's there's got to be a country where this is just really just hitting the mark. And, and, you know, people were really excited about the NX1 because of the H.265 codec that it's using and the um, the higher compatibility with, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, the yeah, H.265, yeah. you know what I'm saying. Basically, they're yeah. doing better compression, so they're getting more uh, image quality out of the Kodak, and they're able to compress it down to something a lot smaller than they would with H.264. And... On that side of the thing, you have to actually do all of the transcoding to get the footage to something that you can actually use in a normal NLE because H.265 is just that tough to handle right now with current CPU technology. But, man, there are a ton of lenses available for this camera. It's not that bad of a price. And, uh, wait, there's one in pink. Really? Pink? (laughs) Okay, this must be like a Korean or asian uh favorite you know maybe in japan or something like that because how how many other brands do you see release colored lenses like that uh just pentax yeah and where's pentax big it's you know japan north korea or south which which one's the good korea (laughs) south south korea there we go that one yeah yeah, because like the Pentex, I mean, that's one of those things I liked. Um, I've actually played with one a little bit and uh, I gave it away as a gift. Um, the Pentax uh, Q7, uh, which was the successor to the Q10, if that makes sense. And those come in all kinds of fancy colors. And even the lenses, you can buy like the zoom lens and stuff like that in the same color scheme. Uh, so if you buy it from the factory, I think there's something like 50 different combinations of uh, what screens you or what color schemes you can get on it. So, uh, but I I actually kind of like that little camera. It was a really fun camera, and uh, the primes for it and stuff like that really aren't bad. It's fun to play with. Not that you'd use it professionally, but yeah, Pentax the only other person I see that does that. Um, yeah, and I'm pretty sure that's those two are the only companies that do it: Samsung and uh, Pentax. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Uh, moving on down the line, and this is a little more disappointing. It's something I kind of wanted to talk about. Um, you've heard me complain about Kickstarters before and uh, not really do much in the way of promoting a lot of them. And it seems like there's more and more hitting the market all the time. This is a Kickstarter fail story. Now, if you guys remember back about one, maybe two years ago, we saw this crazy thing called Snap Focus. And Snap Focus was a camera rig that basically had bicycle grips on either side that were attached to a wire system that was then attached to a gear controller and you could basically squeeze one way or the other in order to pull focus on your camera Uh, the idea sounded pretty decent and the concept looked pretty cool people were pretty impressed with the idea in general and there was a lot of backing for this particular kickstarter now we are two years into the supposed release time of this and the guy raised over a hundred thousand dollars and appears to have Mm -hmm. not made any kind of product at all uh there's a class action lawsuit being put together by a lot of the backers and in general, it's just a big burn to all the people that thought they were going to get this cool rig slash adapter device. I want to tell you guys, listen, Kickstarter <laughs> is not 
a purchasing platform. It's not like a store that you can go to and buy stuff. And I say this knowing that I've been burned previously <laughs> on some stuff. Uh, a lot of times things that come out are either sort of not as promised. Uh, they come out like half-baked and they're not really ready to roll. Or you run into all kinds of other weird stuff. Uh, there was a thing called the camera controller, I believe, that I purchased from a Kickstarter. And it was... I remember that. Yeah, it was a wireless control system that you put onto your camera. And uh, it basically gave you like remote access via Wi-Fi with your cell phone to your Canon camera. Well, that device... Uh, the person that was manufacturing it for the guy that was designing the software, they got into a scuffle about it, and they dropped support for it for a while. They had to sue him to get the rights back to it, and then when they got the rights back, they finally updated it. But it took three or four years before the whole thing was sorted out. And then, you know, now I don't even use it because it's just such a hassle and such a headache to to deal with that I was I just threw it in a box and now the battery's no good in it and it doesn't do anything but uh, weigh paper down you know Devin have you gotten burned by any kickstarters uh, you know what um, I mean besides a few for uh, kind of like movies and other projects like that as terms of film gear um, no I mean uh, it, not that I've ordered a whole lot but uh, there's a zip mount for GoPro, uh, which I think is a fantastic product. It works super well, and it's actually really well made, uh, considering that I think I got I got three of them for thirty bucks. Um, I also got the uh, a GoFlex arm for GoPro, which was kind of right before GoPro came out with their clamp with the gooseneck. The guy had basically the same gooseneck and had a clamp, and was like, "Hey, fifteen bucks," and I was like, "That's not bad." And I've used it a few times, and I give it out to people all the time because it works. Because uh, the GoPro stuff kind of seems to be right in that price point. While I'm kind of willing to take a risk, uh, one of the big ones though is when I spent over a thousand on the Access 3D uh, time lapsing and motorized uh, system. I wasn't burned. The product came and it worked, uh, but they kind of advertised it while also using it in video mode uh, at a higher speed. And while it can perform those higher speeds, it produces so much noise. It doesn't really make it usable in most cases when I would want to use it like interviews and stuff like that. But the time-lapse function of it worked absolutely fantastic. And while it was kind of hard to set up and the build quality wasn't perfect because uh, they're kind of using, they weren't using like ABS plastics or like harder plastics. They're kind of using soft stuff. Uh, it still worked really well. And I got my money's worth. I've used it on tons of shoots doing astrophotography and stuff like that. The one I'm actually waited on right now is the Logger's Lunchbox, which has been kind of long overdue. Did you pull the trigger on, on that guy? Oh, yeah, I did. Oh, yeah, I did. So um, I got some news on you on that, actually. I was um, I was yeah. doing the show with Mitch uh, earlier this week, and he actually met with the guys from uh, Logger's Lunchbox in uh, Chicago. And uh, it, yeah. it looks pretty cool. I, you know, I was kind of surprised by it. It caught me off guard. I remember sort of seeing it and thinking, like, eh, you know, someone's strapped an audio device to a, <laughs> a rig and, like, called it good. But they've really thought about it, and they've done a lot of uh, cool design features and stuff, and they've actually incorporated the tool mount for the tool you need to operate it into the device so you can mm-hmm. grab the tool and use that in order to work on it. Um, I don't know. It looks interesting, but you got it at the it Kickstarter is. price. And yeah. now yeah. I think it's like $2,500 is the is the street price once it starts hitting I, the market. Yeah. Uh, so it's been all over the place because when I first got this, I got this for 700 And to be honest, 700 is probably about how much the product cost outright um, – for what they're originally designing. Since then, they've added so much to it and they've worked so hard on it and done all these redesigns. You could tell these guys really 
gave it to people, had people abuse it and report back, hey, how did it work? Which is one of those things that uh, I think is fantastic. I've, uh, I know some guys who uh, Manfrotto does that with them. They're like, here's a new product, abuse it, let us know where it failed so we can make a better product. And it seems like, uh, especially for a company that just started up just for this product and they haven't really like, you know, produced it yet um or necessarily like released it yet this is really interesting that they've listened this much they understand what's important uh to the crew members that they're trying to sell this to so i got it at 800 and i watched over the entire campaign how they said okay the msrp will be like a thousand it'll be 1200 it'll be 1800 and then um uh yeah a few probably a week ago they said 2500 right now their website is saying two grand yeah i'm looking right now it says 1999 so Maybe it has I don't know down. if that's a pre-order price. I don't know if they're still going to go with 2500 once they're done shipping Kickstarters. I just got my tracking number uh, a few days ago for this product, so it should be coming in. And from what most people said, I haven't used it yet, from what most people said, it looks rock solid. It looks like it's going to work really well. I'm excited to see it. Of course, I'm going to do a bunch of shooting and a full review of it, but uh, I'm super excited and stoked for it, and I hope this isn't a situation where I get burned, but for all intents and purposes, I could get it and it could be complete crap. But so far I'm excited for it and I've got nothing but high hopes. Now, what are you going to use for power on this guy? Are you going to try and pick up a Anton Bauer set or a V-Lock set of batteries in order to uh, run this guy? Or are you going to just do some no, kind of like he... collaborative, like hook stuff together and, you know, use one of those generic battery packs off of eBay? Uh, no, this guy will actually, he will run off of an XLR four pin power connector. If you run that, for, uh, if you've got your own hookup, but he has built in a Sony BP U 60. Oh, okay. Which one of those is the big chunky. Volt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For yeah. This is the same kind of used with like an FS seven or something like that. They're the 14 volt kind, not the seven volt that most people use for led, uh, lights and stuff like that. But I've got one of those shipping in from Amazon. Um, and so that's what actually it's built for. And then if you want to spend 100 bucks or 125 bucks, you can get the adapter that lets you put gold mount and V-mount on there, uh, which I'll probably end up doing too because I see myself, uh, once I test him out, probably kidding this guy out with an EVF that also runs off of that battery and probably an external recorder that runs off that battery. Uh, it's also got external audio output too. If you're in camera, like the Black Magic just stinks no matter how well you have, how, how good of a preamp you have, you're still not going to get great audio. Uh, it has XLR outs. So you can send it to the camera and to your uh, recording device and have perfect, you know, sync measures and stuff like that in both situations. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super definitely expecting a, uh, a show and tell when you get that, man. I want to, I want to <laughs> see it. I want to see what it looks like. <laughs> But it's been long in the waiting. They said August of uh, 2014. So, uh, I mean, they always said it was going to be a pretty long time, but it's definitely been an eager wait because I've watched them slowly turn this thing from what kind of was just, uh, how do I, the the features or the mounting was going to basically look like, and they had a product that they showed. Uh, it was going to be kind of like a Canon uh, XL2 or so where it kind of rests on the shoulder but doesn't come over the shoulder. Yeah. And since then, they made it bigger. They beefed it up. and um, But it doesn't look like they've added weight. They just kind of added a little bit more size to make it a bit more manageable. And uh, they've kind of given it that true ENG mount on the bottom. They've given it shoulder mount. I think they really talked to some people who work in broadcast and it's like, hey, what would you really need? And I'm sure they're like, we need, you know, the, uh, I forget what it's called, but the tripod mount that ENG cameras use, that big bulky mount. Uh, they're like, you know, we need a shoulder with padding on it. You know, we need proper XLR outputs for other things. So I'm, I, it looks like a well thought out product and I'm glad I got it for, you know, uh, 800 bucks or 700 bucks when it came out on Kickstarter. 
because I wasn't planning to get this much, and I feel like I've gotten a lot more than uh, they were originally planning to even give out. Yeah, I, I don't think I even saw this when it came out as a Kickstarter project. Um, so back to the Kickstarter thing. Uh, this one looks yes, like it yes. will be a success, but it's going to take quite a while to get your hands on. Uh, the other ones, you know, just remember, guys, when you invest in a Kickstarting, uh, Kickstarter, you're investing in, like, somebody's dream. Hopefully they know yes. what they're doing can actually accomplish that, but... <laughs> You know, it's it's a crapshoot as to whether you're going to get the product or not. Sometimes you're working with companies that are just basically pre-releasing a future product via Kickstarter to generate hype and mm -hmm. uh, enthusiasm for it. If that's the case, you know, 90% of the time you're you're going to get what you you want. But I think there's there's even a Kickstarter fail uh, webpage where they actually track stuff that either hasn't come out, uh, the Kickstarters were just horrible, or what have you. And then the second tier version of Kickstarter, Indiegogo, man, I don't know about that. You know, they get the money whether they raise <laughs> enough or not. And uh, some of the projects on there just look like they, they look shifty. They look really shifty. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So just be careful. It's not an online store. <laughs> um, again, my warning, I've been burned. I no longer advertise Kickstarter campaigns for that reason. Uh, the Logger's Lunchbox does look pretty cool. Disappointed I didn't get in on that Kickstarter, but, you know, <laughs> the regrets in hindsight are always there. Now, something new from Rode, and Rode's got some really cool stuff. In fact, I'm using the Rode Procaster right now. I love this mic, by the way, uh, is the Rode VideoMic Pro. And this has been around for a long time in various flavors. And over the years, Rode has released updates to this microphone that basically in, in, in reality didn't do much to the microphone itself, but it changed the suspension and shock mount system. And it looks like they're going to do that again. Now, if you're... Um, Familiar with the Rokot uh, Liar? Li I, I'm just horribly butchering these names here. Um, <laughs> I don't know it either. Don't look it, at me, uh, man. <laughs> they make these really cool. If you've ever been to NAB or you've ever been to the B&H store, you'll see these shock mounts, and they're kind of a U-shape. It's this resi uh, resilient plastic uh, rubber material that can be bent all over the place. It's really good suspension, and they they usually build these units with like a clip-in for boom mics inside of your blimp and stuff like that, and they're really nice. Uh, Rokot makes some really good stuff. Their blimps are really good. Their windscreens are great. And now it looks like they're partnering with Rode for the VideoMic Pro to update the suspension on that microphone to give it a better ride. So they've added two of these U-shaped kind of uh, resilient rubber plastic-esque things to the bottom of the Rode VideoMic. And if you've used the VideoMic Pro in the past, you're probably familiar with the fact that the current rubber bandy suspension system falls off, gets stuck on stuff, comes apart, and it can be a general headache, especially if you have the old version of the original Rode VideoMic where it had those little tiny rubber bands, the little circles. Yeah. Did, you know, you always lost those, and then trying to well, find they, new ones. They always broke. You throw them in your bag, you know, and you expect it to be a bit more uh, rough and tumble. But uh, those, while the mics handled just fine, those little things broke all the time. And I didn't bother buying the ones from Rode because you know how much they want. I ended up just getting, I think, a little rubber bands for braces and putting that around it because they broke so often. I needed to buy them in packs of 50. So yeah, I want to say it was, it was like 15 bucks or 20 bucks for the little set of rubber bands from Rode. And they gave you yeah. a set when you bought the mic. But, you know, as soon as you throw the case down, you lose those. And you're like, whoa. What do I do now, you know? <laughs> so it's, I definitely think it's it's worth it if you're looking at this mic for the first time. Um, but 
the road the pro mic i never had too much of an issue actually with the rubber band falling around i mean i guess maybe i just felt it was like so much better than the first revision of their video mic uh that i was like oh hey at least it doesn't break all the time and i can fix it right away there was so. two versions and they didn't really advertise this but um during the production of the road video mic pro the entire line they started out with this kind of like nub system that like shoved into the side of the mic and that's what held the suspension in place and then later on they kind of without really any fanfare um just started releasing an upgraded version that had a better cradle that didn't fall off as easily and so depending on okay. which generation you got you could have ended up with the original or the upgraded one and they didn't talk about it much but if you had one of the original ones and you were unhappy with it uh road if you emailed them and you know just kind of talked back and forth a lot of times they would let you actually just mail in your original road video mic pro and they would send you back one with the upgraded suspension for free or for shipping cost and so you could actually upgrade in that manner i don't think they're going to do that with the road video mic pro with this new adapter but the nice thing about no, this is it's so. a solid piece and i've actually messed around with the rokat uh suspension system because i was i was looking at one for a boom mic setup uh last year the year before and you can literally bend those all the way around twist them and torture them and they they go back they bounce back into position and they do a great job of suspending your mic they look really goofy uh some of them are in coil shape some of them are in this u shape and they have a universal clamp so they say it's universal well anyway let's not get into that part but um no. this guy right here I, I mean it's a decent upgrade I don't know. If I like. Well, you, I like the idea. If you haven't bought one before, it makes sense. I would say to get uh, this model because you know you'll never have to worry about uh, the rubber bands again. I appreciate the fact that the uh, the suspension comes in black because for the previous, all the previous mics they came in red, uh, which is cool in photos, but you know not necessarily when you're around clients and stuff like that. You want your film gear to look all like. Well, you're you're, you're not talking. You're talking about the uh, the the video mic regular because the pro has always been black that's right right the pro has always been black but when they added the suspension system uh to the old mic they did it in red as well as the uh the video mic go they also did in red as well so it's just nice to see something simple just a matte black for me yeah so anyway uh not a whole lot of upgrades as far as the microphone itself are concerned if you don't have one uh, this might be well worth investing in if you already have one. May not be worth as much to you. Um, I don't actually use my Rode VideoMic Pro for regular on-location audio capture, uh, specifically for filming. I use it to capture like extra audio to sync the camera later. Um, but I do use it for actual audio on camera when I am close to a subject. A lot of times if I'm in a big hurry and I don't have a sound guy with me, if you film all your dialogue lines, you know, a couple feet from your actor or actress's face with the Rode video mic, you'll get good audio. You can save that and continue to, to use that in your clips and then cut back and forth as needed and sync stuff up accordingly. Uh, but if I'm shooting on set, usually I still run around with a full-size boom mic. So this is kind of like mm -hmm. the in-between. I've always been torn because I like this way better than the on-camera mic, and Rode does a good job with it, but for it's not for everything. And I've seen people try right. to you know, strap a Zoom H1 to a boom pole and then run a cord up to their <laughs> Rode VideoMic Pro and then try to use that as a boom mic. And you know, I've heard stuff that was pretty good that they actually made it work, but... 
it's not really designed for that. It's really just designed for stuff that's close to your camera. It gets you good audio yeah. in that regard, and it captures good stra- uh, scratch tracks when you need to sync stuff later on. So just a few things to think about when you're investing in a Rode video mic. Also, the Pro... Uh, VideoMic Pro and their uh, NTG series mics aren't too far apart in pricing. And if you're looking to upgrade your audio stuff, you might want to check out their NTG series as opposed to... I love the NTG stuff, dude. Yeah. It sounds fantastic. The 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 three and the two aren't too bad, and the price is decent. Uh, You're talking like $300 to $400 for a a good boom mic. The other one, and I, I... I love this mic. I have like four of them. I keep buying them whenever I see them because I'm just that weird is the audio technica <laughs> 4073. If you can get your hands on one of yep. those, you can find them used on eBay for like 250 bucks. They are awesome. Super hot boom mics. They put out the strongest signal I've heard out of any boom mic I've ever used. Uh, they're really forgiving. Even if your subject is far away and they just do a great job of, of picking up audio at a distance. Don't use them in a room because they'll pick up all the reflection in the world. But outside shooting, man, they are good. <laughs> and you can get them for cheap. They retail for like seven or 800 bucks. But if you look on eBay, you can find them used for like 200 maybe $300. Uh, they show up every once in a while, and they're definitely worth investing in. Now, the next thing on the list here, and these are actually some of your ads, so I'll let you scale into this. <laughs> I kind of wanted to actually look at that uh, ball head you were talking about, so maybe we'll start with that, the Manfrotto ball head leveler. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about this thing, Devin. So I saw this is one of those that I'd like to go pick one up and try it out. I haven't gotten to it yet. I need to get into uh, one of the video pro stores around uh, my place so I can get my hands on one. But what it looks like is it's actually adding the ability to do Um, You know, a lot of video tripods have a ball head on top. And with most of your tripods, there's the exceptions. With most of your tripods, you have an option of you can get the kind that uh, have a telescoping pole in the middle to elevate the camera further from the tripod. uh, Or you get a ball head, which helps you to level it. And, of course, a lot of video guys who are running around for a lot of stuff, uh, they like to do that because most of the time you're picking up the tripod, moving it, get another shot, picking up the tripod, moving it, get another shot. Um, as opposed to a lot of photography, if you're doing that, you just hold the camera and take it as long as you're not doing any kind of specialty or long exposure. So, But this kind of gives you that ability where if you're using a smaller, more like photography tripod or one of those tripods that doesn't have a head on it for uh, or a ball head to level it, this guy will go ahead and slap on top for you. It's got a tripod mount in the bottom and um, in the top. So you put it in between the tripod and in between your pan and tilt head. And this will give you, from what I've seen, it's like casted metal. It all looks like really strong. Uh, a lot of these things will handle up to 30 pounds and whatnot. You, um, and then you level it, go ahead and uh, cinch it down. And you've kind of now added a ball head to a tripod that didn't have it before for about 85 bucks. Which if you've got some kind of crazy carbon fiber, super light, very small thing because you take it on a plane with you or you travel, you backpack a lot or something like that. This gives you, um, they have a decent video of it online. Uh, it gives you something like, I want to say probably close to 18 to 20 degrees of movement. Like it, it acts like a real ball wow. head as you expect on a tripod. There's a lot of movement in it and it doesn't look like it have that much. Um, but I've seen video examples of it and I've seen other companies come out with them and I haven't always like trusted them because the companies weren't like necessarily that big in brand or I just haven't seen anything I really felt confident about. Uh, but this Manfrotto here, um, I mean, it comes from Manfrotto. And yeah, that can be a mixed bag for some people. I know a few pros are in or out about it, but uh, for me, I go, this looks like a solid product and I'm really surprised by the price, especially with that Manfrotto name on it. I've gotten burned. Um, uh, Gaito, I believe I'm pronouncing that correct. Uh, 
I'm just not yeah, on guide, my yeah. yeah, I'm not on my pronouncing game today. I think it's so, Korean or something. Yeah, yeah I, I have a, a really heavy duty ball head from um, you know, swivel adjusting ball head from those guys, and it is, I want to say, five pounds. It's super heavy. Mm-hmm. It's not very easy to use. This looks like a great alternative to that because honestly, like I, I know you buy the ball head so you can twist it over camera over to the side and do different framing and stuff like that. But honestly, I just use it to kind of position and move the camera once it's been mounted to a, a locking plate. So this thing right here, I mean, uh, it looks like it has 360 degrees of movement and then uh, 20 degrees sideways on either side. Is that correct? So you can uh, yes, actually that's spin. That's what it's looking like for me. Yeah, so you can spin it all the way around. So I mean, this is way lighter, way more petite, and it handles thirty-three pounds. That's plenty for what I would use it for. And it, it's a lot skinnier and smaller than the ball head I normally use. So I might have to look into this. I hadn't really seen one of these before. Uh, honestly, I'm not the guy that levels my camera on a regular basis. <laughs> um, I actually, on the GH4, I find myself in the Canon 5D Mark III as well. They have that line that just tells you when you're level. Yeah. And I use that as my level adjustment. I've never actually bothered to use right. the bubble. Part, but part of that is, is, but part of that, it's not so much the bubble, but part of that is the ability to uh, level without having to extend and retract feet. Yeah, that's you got true. A tripod. That's, that's like really the advantage you're getting here is that it's built for... Uh, if the tripod doesn't have a leveling function to it, uh, I've I used to have really cheap tripods that every time my video wasn't quite level, uh, I'd sit there and undo a couple of feet and oh this one a little more okay this one a little more because it's not as easy as the ball head because you got to think in three dimensions right you got you got three legs and you got to think well if it's a little bit you know left but it's also a little bit forward that means this leg a little bit this leg a little bit more so it, for me. I can't use a tripod. You've that seen doesn't some have of my work, though, Devin. Kind of a lot of times, I'm like, eh, let's just Dutch the heck out of this. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm bad about That's this. That's different. You call it style. That's different. When you call it style, you can get away with that. Yeah. I don't so, have the confidence to call that style. Shooting. I shoot a lot of feature length films, and um, I was showing Devin the other day. We were kind of talking behind the scenes, and I showed him like a pre-cut of something I was working on. And you know, I, he he mentioned it right away. He's like, "That's a little more Dutch than I would prefer." And I'm like, "Oh yeah." And I, <laughs> I thought about it for a second. I went through the entire uh, shoot because it was a 20-minute short, and I, I dutched almost every <laughs> shot in the entire thing, like whether it was you know to the side, dramatic dutch, like every angle was dutched. Every time someone walked into a doorway, it was dutched. And I've always <laughs> just done that. It's been a thing that I've like fallen into is like, oh, I like the look of that. It makes it interesting. But now I think it might be my bad calling card where <laughs> – I might do that too much. I should probably actually pay attention to whether or not my stuff is level. Um, on the Verizon line, though, I use that a lot because if I have a building or something mm-hmm. like that that I want to line up, the auto feature in the GH4 and in the Canon 5D Mark III, you can use that Horizon line to just find your straight angle and line up with that it. That works great. And I usually I, do I that like all the time. Um, with one of those uh, wacky adjustable, um, uh, shoot, the Gorilla Pods. You know, because the gorilla pods, you can kind of bend them all over and stuff. So a lot of times I find myself either with a monopod or a gorilla pod, and I'm, like, leaning up against a car. I'm, like, resting it on something random. And that is kind of why I use that uh, the the leveling mark on there. I don't ever use the floating circle ball, though. So 
I don't know. Right. I'm going to look into this, man. This looks kind of cool, but I probably will just go lazy and continue to shoot Dutch for everything <laughs> because that's how I roll. Um, all right, moving on down the line. I got one more thing on here that you posted in the show notes that I thought was pretty cool, and that was the SLR Magic 25mm uh, T0.95. Now, before we dive yes. into that, Devin, you want to give me a, the rundown on the difference between a T and your regular aperture mark on a lens? Because a lot of people are confused about this. And I can answer <laughs> it if I'm throwing you under the bus, like, right out of the... No, no, no. You're testing me. You're testing me, DJ, and I appreciate it. Uh, as far as what I've understood, um, F is a mathematical uh, way of judging how much light should be going through the lens, uh, depending on angles and how many elements and stuff like that. And from what I've understood in cinema... Uh, they go with a T-based system, which is an actual metered or measured of how much light is going through the lens. I've heard the general rule of thumb, not that I've used a whole bunch of T's or anything like that, but the general rule of thumb is that the T's, I guess, are a smidgen brighter sometimes uh, than their usually uh, F counterparts if they have any. So it, it just tends to be a different they, they they're really close you can kind of think of them really as the same way uh but like in this case the slr magic 25 at t 0.95 compared to the voigtlander 25 at f 0.95 those side by side it's very small but the t is just a little bit brighter um and it's I, as far as i've understood it's supposed to mean that it's actually measured to that which would be important when you're shooting on film because you only have one chance to get the shot so you want to make sure that you're properly exposing uh, your film. So I, that's where I've heard it's come from. I'm sure you can fill in with a bit more details about that. No, you've pretty much nailed it. If you look at like uh, any of the Rokinon lenses where they have the cinema version and then they have the regular version, you'll notice the regular version is rated for an F1.4 and their cinema version is rated for an F1 or a T1.5. And the T1.5 is what actually is measured with a light meter through all the glass and everything else to the sensor plane on the camera or, or whatever you're shooting on. The F1.4 is the theoretical value that should be coming out of it based on all the elements and everything else that are calculated for your optics going through. So the difference between those is very minimal, but there is a difference uh, in the case of 0.95 for this versus the Voigtlander, your Voigtlander, by the time you get all the way through, is probably more like an F10 or an F101 yeah. or something like that compared to an actual 0.95. And that is interesting and something to think about and something that's confusing to a lot of filmmakers because people don't really, you know, it takes time to dig into this sort of thing yeah. and, and even to remember it. So I thought I'd throw that one out there just as like a <laughs> kind of make sure we're on the same page and catching up. <laughs> right. Um, Right. Yeah, so this 549 for the pricing on this compared to I think isn't the um isn't the Voigtlander uh, yes. somewhere in the range of like 800 to 1000 dollars retail? About uh, I want to say the Voigtlander back when I was looking at these lenses Voigtlander was going for about 1000. I actually bought this SLR Magic before they made it. They had a pre-sale where I could pick it up for I think 750. Um, the MSRP on it's supposed to be about 900, I believe. But uh, I actually pre-ordered it because I saw a bunch of tests between the two, and I was very confident and said, you know, the SLR Magic looks just as good as the Voigtlander, and it's going to be a little bit cheaper. Just like the Voigtlander, though, because this is very much kind of the same kind of operation. Uh, SLR Magic has the same kind of operation as Voigtlander. Um, I've heard of people having slop. I didn't have that problem, uh, but I do have a cheaper 35 millimeter 1.8 cine glass from SLR Magic, and that does have slop in the focus ring. So 
Um, but I, I don't know how often it happens. I didn't hear a bunch about it, but I do know one or two people have complained about this having slop in the focus. I lucked out. Mine is great. I use it every single time, just like DJ uses his Voigtlander every single time. Um, when I saw a great test of them side by side, it also looked too like the SLR Magic, the anti-glare that they uh, coating that they put on the lens elements, uh, ends up with a slightly warmer picture than the Voigtlander. The Voigtlander seems slightly cooler in a yeah. lot of tests that I looked at. Um, so that's also something to consider too, depending on your style and how you shoot. But for me, I was basically looking for the price, and that's why I bring this up again because I've never seen it for this cheap. It's usually going for eight hundred on eBay or something like that, and here you can buy it from uh, Adorama for 550 which is a great price i don't know if they're dumping stock to bring something else in or something like that but just like the other one it's all machine metal it's a super heavy lens it's the heaviest lens i own and i've got like a rokinon 85 millimeter t1.5 for nikon and that's a pretty big heavy lens so it's a super heavy lens but i do love it it gives me a bunch of control when i dial that to 1.2 i get a super sharp image even around the corners it gets really sharp especially when you take it up to like 1.6 you do have flaring on it uh, because it is so far open, it comes with a small lens hood that pops out, but it does nothing. But if you're so, J.J. Abrams, uh, that's a style <laughs> choice, not a problem. <laughs> that's right. If you're J.J. Abrams, slam it all the way open and just roll with it. Um, but uh, for people who are concerned about the flaring, and there is massive flaring if you aren't using a matte box or something like that, I find right around 1.2, all the flares are gone. Uh, it looks just fine, and anything other than your normal flares, like if you actually have a light in the field of view. So... I would say 1.2 is kind of more close to the usable in most cases, but yeah, you can open up even more, get a little extra bit of light if that's what it takes to keep, say, your ISO down in your GH4 so you don't end up going to 1250 or something more grainy like that. So Now, you've been shooting with this on your pocket camera, is that correct? Yeah, so then as well with, as the GH3. Oh, as the GH3, okay. That's what I was wondering because on the pocket cam with the crop factor, I mean, you wouldn't really see the soft corners because it's just punching in so far yeah, into the yeah. center of the lens. But if it's if it's sharp in the corners on the GH4, that's good. The um, the Voigtlander, I haven't done a side-by-side -side with these. I've only been using the Voigtlander 25mm uh, f095, and it is a little bit soft, wide open in the corners, and as we discussed earlier, in the center of the image a little bit as well. Uh, color mm -hmm. representation on these Micro Four Third lens, uh, lenses in general has kind of surprised me. I've, you know, as a Canon shooter, yeah, they're all over the place. I mean, like, with my Canon, um, you know, L-series glass, it's like mm -hmm. you get pretty much the same thing from every lens. I mean, you know, if you're yeah. going to go get a test chart out and check it, you're going to find that there are some uh, ab abnormalities in color, admiration, and stuff like that. But for the most mm -hmm. part, like, you pop one on, and it's going to look pretty much the same as, it, as any of the other L-series lenses. But with, like... Uh, the Panasonic versus Olympus versus everything else. It's like these lenses kind of have their own nature and feel. And sometimes I feel like it's pulling the warmth out of my shots. And sometimes I feel like it's making it a little bit overly yellow. And I don't know, like I've, I've yeah, it's, I, maybe it's a GH4 some... too. Cause I've heard people <laughs> complain about the internal um, color control system in the GH4 versus like Canon cameras. And when I shoot stills with the GH4, I almost always have to adjust the white balance and move it around to get it to kind of fall into line mm -hmm. with what it should have been to begin with. So maybe it's the camera and not the lenses. I don't know. I, I definitely think there's a little bit in the lenses with these cameras because I'm noticing the same kind of characteristics between Black Magic and a GH3. Uh, but for me, um, 
it's it is you know what like oh, i know a lot of people uh are all about like lenses with character they don't like like stereo lenses they like lenses that have character to it uh but i think that that's more a fun adventure in photography than necessarily in video because a lot of video is i want an accurate image and then i'll worry about it later um where photography i think tends to be more free in terms of artistic expression and being part of the moment so but in my case yes this lens is a little warmer um and of course with the flaring issue sometimes your black levels pick up pretty significantly with it uh and that's why i'm usually concerned about it because i'll lose a lot of contrast because it'll just flare across the entire field of view uh but like I said, if you're aware of it and you shoot for that, um, I don't really think it's a problem. For me, the warmness has never been so much that it's ever been that big a problem. Like, yeah, I'll dip it a little bit towards blue to match with my other Panasonic lenses because the Panasonic lenses, you know, I love them. They're high contrast. They're very clean. There's nothing to them. It's like, you know, like you said with the Canon glass, you put it on and it just looks right. Um, but for me, it's like this is acceptable considering the price point and considering the speed I get and that this isn't really available uh, for this price from anywhere else. Though I suppose if you want the cleanest image and these kind of speeds, you could start using a speed booster and uh, some old fast Nikon glass because those tend to be pretty reliable too in color profiles. Yeah, the speed booster is pretty nice. Um, actually, speaking of which, have you seen that cap cap on uh, adapter with the super fast autofocus system built in for Micro Four Thirds cameras to Canon uh, lenses? No. Oh my gosh, no, man! Not. I've got one on pre order. They're um, three hundred forty nine dollars, and I've talked about it a couple episodes ago. I think you might have missed that show, but um, basically, what's going on is it, it doesn't have the speed booster technology in it, but it mm-hmm. does have some sort of translating. Uh, uh, program inside of it that it allows it to autofocus Canon glass on a Micro Four Thirds body as fast as uh, the Micro Four Thirds body can autofocus on a native glass. So wow, yeah, and I mean even in video mode, it's like pew, 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 you know, I mean it's just nailing it every time. <laughs> like I don't even know how to describe it. It's a it's freaking amazing. And so I pulled the trigger on one of those right away on eBay. They're three forty nine. I've got one coming. It will probably be here at the beginning of next month. So. I will have some updates on that when it gets here. But as far as the speed booster goes, that's the most frustrating part about the speed booster is actually a lot of times I cheat. And I know it's not the proper way <laughs> to film, but uh, when I want to get something in focus, I use the autofocus point on the GH4 or my 5D Mark III, uh, select the point that I want, uh, half press the button, get it in focus, and then I start filming. And I do that all the time because it's just faster for me than sitting there, you know, uh, punching in and moving things okay. around. If I yeah. have to pull focus i will do it correctly with a gear and everything else but a lot of times i just need you know my subject in focus i need to film something really quick i need to move somewhere else i need to put it in focus i need to film really quick and i'm not pulling focus or moving the focus points around a lot so it's not an issue and if you're at five six or you know uh f4 or so as long as you're close to wherever your subject is i mean the af system usually does just fine getting someone in focus and it saves you a lot of work but when you're using the speed booster with canon glass it's slow as molasses to focus with Canon yeah. glass on there. It's just like, it's like 30 seconds sometimes to get focus. I mean, you could actually sit there with a stopwatch and, you know, wait and count <laughs> it out. It's that long. You might as well eat your lunch while you're waiting for the lens to focus. And it's become this thing that's so frustrating that I don't find myself using the speed booster unless there's something very critical that I absolutely need it for. But if I had something like this that focused really fast, I would switch over and use my Canon glass all the time. And then 
when I do have a shoot where I am strictly shooting with my Canon body and my Canon lenses, I can throw the GH4 in as a B-roll camera with the adapter and then go from there. Yeah, and yeah, I, I can definitely see that too because I use autofocus systems all the time, um, and I know that everyone's always all about manual, but um, a lot of the times it's about getting the shot and what works for you, and especially if you're in a self-shooting environment, something like that, especially if you can do it remotely on a phone or something like that and leave it in manual mode so it doesn't get, drift away from you while you're shooting. Uh, to me, that's perfectly acceptable. It's a way to get the shot that you need and get it fast, and at the end of the day, that's what counts. Well, and... Uh... You know, don't listen to, don't follow the like, I've been cheating for years filming style that I use. There are better ways to do it. And, you know, by far, if you have a guy that's really good at point focus, um, have that guy on the lens all the time, point focus for you, and you'll get some awesome shots. Do your depth measurements and all that stuff and pull focus all day long. It'll look great. But, you can't always do that, and that is a really easy way to cheat. Now, also, you mentioned your phone. There are IR blasters as well that work with Canon cameras, as well as, I believe, Nikon cameras that will start and stop recording as mm -hmm. well as take a photo beforehand. And if you take a photo wherever your focus point is set, it will focus the camera to that point, and then you start recording video after that. And you, you can basically stand in front of the camera and take care of starting and stopping your recording while you are hands-free operating the camera as well. And if you're doing, like, reviews or you need to talk into the camera by yourself and you don't have a cameraman with you, that is totally nice, handy way to get things done. Yep. I'm yep, just absolutely. covering all the cheats today. All <laughs> right. Uh, let me see what else we got in the show notes. I am excited about that um, SLR Magic 25mm F09 or T095. Uh, it yep. does appear that the uh, Voigtlander is still $999, so $1,000 even. If you look on eBay, the mm -hmm. Voigtlander is cheaper. Um, I don't know if this is some sort of uh, trick with uh, shipping from another country or something like that where their money is worth less. But uh, you can <laughs> get the Voigtlander 25mm 095 for around... There's some buy it now. It's for 588 it looks like, and lower on eBay. So uh, that price range may be because they're trying to compete with the first generation of Voigtlanders because they did just release the Mark II version of the of the Voigtlander 25mm F095. And I'm looking right now here, and I'm highlighting this, 588 bucks. And what did we say the uh, Adorama deal was? 549 So, I mean, they're neck and neck as far as price goes. Uh, in the eBay market. And that may, again, be something like you're getting gray market from uh, Korea or from mm -hmm. Taiwan yeah. or something like that. So keep that in mind if uh, that's what you're up to. Anyway, on that note, we have run an hour and 17 minutes. Devin, do you have anything else you want to add before we roll out of the cast? No, I was going to talk about how excited I was for my lager's lunchbox, but we've already burned that today. So oh, sorry, <laughs> I'm man. strapped. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a sweet no, deal. Good. I, I want to see it when uh, you finally get it in your hands. Uh, I'll, we'll make sure maybe do a special show where you can just kind of do a show and Absolutely. tell, maybe even uh, get some live view <laughs> questions or something like that out so that people can ask sure, what yeah. they want and see it in action. Uh, on that note, you can find this podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and anywhere podcasts are delivered. You can watch us on YouTube. Make sure you hit the like button and subscribe to everything because that's what you do these days. Also, follow us on Twitter. Devin, where can they find you on Twitter? ImpulseNetworks.tv, where I'll be uploading videos and footage of the Loggers Lunchbox when I get my hands on it. 
And of course, thanks as always, guys, for watching or listening to the DSLR Film New Podcast. I will have a home starting next week, and I'm excited because now I'll be able to regularly post again. I'll have my freaking stuff back. <laughs> on that note, guys, thanks for watching and listening. I will see you next week on another DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Yeah.